Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 as we come once again to this uh, magnificent and richest of chapters in Scripture, recognized by so many because of the depths and the richness that it brings to us. And we have been looking for a number of weeks now right at the heart of this passage. It's difficult really to move very quickly because of everything God has packed in here for us and what an encouragement it brings to our hearts particularly in verses 17 through 30, which, which really hit us right where we are in terms of our life experience, our sufferings, our pains, our disappointments, while at the same time lifting us from where we are into where we will be. As we mentioned a, a number of times, it is a passage that is framed literally by glory. You see it in verse 17 when Paul talks about us suffering with Christ in order that we might be glorified together with Him. And it spans all the way down to verse 30 when Paul ultimately brings us back to the same issue, speaking about how we have been predestined, we've been called into glory even through all of the difficulties of life. And throughout this profound passage, we've been looking as Paul takes us from one perspective to another about this journey, about this pathway that we're taking to glory, but all of it sort of, uh, if you will, summarized, I think, in verse 22 where it says, or verse uh, 23, where it says that not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit and grown inwardly as we wait for the ado- our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is where Paul wants our mind to be. He wants us to have that sort of groaning, that sort of longing and anticipation for the day when all that we experience now, which is so burdensome to us, makes us groan so much, we'll all be lost and forgotten at the redemption of our bodies, our final and full adoption as the sons of God. And with each perspective that Paul has taken us through in this passage, we climb, if you will, higher and higher and higher in the richness of our understanding of how God is at work through these sufferings while we wait for glory. And what we've learned has been encouraging, what we've learned has been sustaining, but for some it could raise questions. That if God is so aware of these sufferings, if, if it is so much... Uh, something that He enters into with us. In fact, we saw last week the Holy Spirit actually groans together with us. He sympathizes with us. There's an intimacy in the midst of all of our struggles and all of our aches and all of our heartaches and pains. There's an intimacy from God in that He enters in with us and groans together with us, even to the point where He prays. He prays with with groanings that are not even expressed in words. They're so deep in his heart. But God hears them. God understands them. He searches hearts. He knows the mind of the Spirit, and he responds. Now, you might be asking, well, if he's responding, if the Holy Spirit is praying, if he's hearing all the Spirit's prayers, then why in the world am I still suffering? Right? That's a good question. 
I mean, if the Holy Spirit really understands what I'm going through, if he really understands the struggles and the sleepless nights and the anxieties and and all of the turmoil and the fights and the quarrels and everything else, if he really understands what I'm going through and if he really is praying for me, then why am I still suffering? Why is all this stuff still going on? Does God really even know or understand Really, how deeply this hurts. Well, yes, he does. Exactly as Paul says he does. He's groaning with you. He's aching with you. But it doesn't mean that he's not praying the right prayer for you. And it doesn't mean that God the Father is not hearing the Spirit in those prayers. It's just that in this suffering that you're experiencing, you have to understand that God has ordained it. You have to understand that God doesn't want you out of it. He has you in it for a purpose, for a reason. He's not just allowing it. He has ordained it. In fact, he's predestined it. Paul already hinted at that back in verse 17 when he said that if we are to be glorified with Christ, we must also suffer with him. But now, in verse 28... We have an explicit statement that God is sovereignly at work in all of this suffering, bringing about His purposes in it. He's ordained it to accomplish His ends. Now, there are a lot of people who don't like that message. There are a lot of people who ridicule that message. In fact, a few weeks ago on the uh, internet, on the Gospel Coalition website, there was a, uh, a roundtable discussion among some pastors that are making exactly this point that suffering comes in our life and God not only allows it, but God actually ordains it, which created a little bit of a firestorm. In fact, one major Christian news service picked up on the video and labeled it poisonous thinking in the Christian church. They're saying this was poisonous for people to actually think and believe that the kind of pain and suffering that you go through is ordained by God. This writer particularly declared it poisonous to suggest that God sovereignly directs suffering or brings about greater and eternal purposes through it. He suggested that any such idea is incompatible with a legitimate view of a loving God. But the truth is, not only is it compatible, it is absolutely necessary. It's necessary theologically because the last thing that you want is the kind of world in which some force, whether it's evil, suffering, or pain, exists which God cannot control. The last thing you want is some kind of pain and suffering going on that God, because he's not sovereign over it, cannot ensure will work out for the best purposes in your life. Not only is it necessary theologically in that sense, but it's necessary biblically if you're to make any sense out of a number of statements in Scripture. Because over and over and over again, the Bible tells us That God is in control, is sovereignly appointing even suffering for his own purposes. You may remember the story of Joseph 
in the book of Genesis who spent many years suffering injustice at the hands of his brothers, at the hands of Pharaoh, at the hands of others throughout his life, facing prison and slavery because of it. Years, decades of his life. You might even hear someone suggest decades lost because of this injustice. But later on in his life, when he came face to face with the very brothers who had cast him down this path, who had treated him so unjustly, he declares to them in Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. He had a robust view of God. He had a right view of God. That none of those evil things would have happened had not God intended them to happen. Had not God ordained them to happen. He recognized that there were multiple players in his suffering, multiple causes. There was what some theologians call a first cause, which was the evil intent of his brothers. But there was a second and greater cause, which was the intent of God all the way through it. And Joseph simply recognizes that much of God's plan for him would not have been possible had it not been for the suffering which he endured. Things which God not only wanted him to accomplish, not only that God wanted to do through him, but more importantly, the things God wanted to do in him that could not have happened were it not for the things that he suffered. In a similar fashion, Peter, in the New Testament, stands up on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and preaches the first sermon in the church. And what he says in that sermon in Acts 2.23 is that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was a man delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. But he immediately then tells the Jews, but you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So Peter understood this, this um, causality, if you will, that there might have been a first cause, which was the evil intent of these Jewish leaders and the participation of the Romans along with them. He understood that there were the actions and the decisions and the culpability of evil and wicked men in the suffering of Christ. But he also understood that that suffering would never have taken place had not God predestined it which is really the proper translation there, through the predestination and the foreknowledge of God, these things took place, he says. God predestined and predetermined that this evil act would be used and accomplish His will. Now, this is exactly the truth that Paul is challenging us to realize in Romans 8.28, to understand and to believe. We know, he says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I believe that there's a lot of truth packed in that, and you could explore this verse in so many ways, but I want us to take note of really five key challenges that are issued here, five challenges that you and I need to believe about our suffering and about our pain and about our trial, five challenges we might say to change our perspective on our problems, 
And Paul gives them to us in this one profound and beloved verse. He adds it really, if you remember, to the total picture that we've already seen, the, the, how our suffering is parallel with creation, how our suffering is bringing patience that God is working within us, how in our suffering the Holy Spirit is praying for us, but now he wants to sort of add a fourth perspective to all this suffering to deal with how the providence of God is overruling, or, or, or I should say superintending all of this suffering. And with this providence, we want to look at really five challenges that Paul gives us in it to help change our perspective on our problems. And the first challenge is simply this, the confidence that you must have in God's good purpose through your suffering. The confidence you must have in God's good purpose through your suffering. Paul simply says that these are things that we know. We know. We're confident of that. We're certain of it. There are a lot of things you don't know in the midst of your suffering. There's a, there, he just told us in verse 26 and 27, you don't know how to pray. You don't always know what the... Uh, what the pathway is. You don't know what you should pray for. You don't always know the specific direction you should go. You don't always know the decisions you should make. It's tormenting to know that you want so badly sometimes to, to, uh, to please God and do His will and not even know what it is. And so you're, you're just torn up inside. You've sought counsel, hopefully, along the way. You've turned to His Word. You've lifted up and bathed these issues in prayer. And still, at times, there are all kinds of things you don't know. But in spite of all the things that you don't know, what you ought to always know is that God is at work, working all things together for your good. We may not understand it. We might be perplexed by it. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are those who are perplexed but not in despair. We're perplexed sometimes. We wish we knew the mysteries of God's counsel, the mysteries of His will. We wish we knew why He's doing what He's doing in our life, in our family, in our body, in our work, whatever it might be. We wish we knew those things. But those secret things belong to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us. And what is revealed to us and what we know, Paul says, is that no matter what the details are, we know that in every single circumstance, God is working it together for your good. Or another way to say this is nothing can work against you. No person, no force, no circumstance... No obstacle can work against you, ultimately, because of God's sovereign plan and His love. Nothing can happen to us that will bring about our ultimate harm. It will all work together for our good. And we realize that, especially for these good purposes, that there are actually few other things that God could use in our life, like pain and suffering, to bring about some of His purposes. It's unfortunate that it's the case, but we simply don't learn some things apart from suffering. There are just some things that you don't learn in the midst of ease and comfort and smooth sailing and prosperity. 
And so we need these things. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Or he says a few verses later in, in 119 verse 71, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Or in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In other words, there's just some, there's just some hard soil sometimes in our life. There's some embedded patterns and habits or whatever it might be that are difficult to uproot any other way but to take us through pathways of suffering. So you see, we have this robust view of God and this confidence that His sovereignty is over all of these afflictions. We have that. Otherwise, we'll end up being what James calls a double-minded man, driven and tossed by the winds and storms of life. Not one who is standing in faith, but one who is standing in doubt. Not having confidence in God's sovereign purpose. And therefore, not able to follow James' admonition. That you count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the trial is working the perfecting of your faith. Because we know God is producing all kinds of good through it. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are transient, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There is a kind of confidence in Paul's heart whenever he faced difficulties and trials, a kind of confidence in the purposes of God that even in his afflictions, he would not lose heart. At times he lost everything. He lost material goods. He lost his personal freedom. He lost his friends who all abandoned him. And yet he wouldn't lose heart. He wouldn't lose heart. But his inner man was being renewed day by day. Now we can add to that challenge, that challenge of confidence in God's purpose, another challenge that Paul gives us here, which is simply the comprehensiveness that you must understand, the comprehensiveness that you must understand in God's good purposes for your suffering. This is a purpose, a sovereign working, Paul says, that includes all things, all suffering, all hardship, all groanings. Everything. It's the same basic idea he gives in other places. 1 Corinthians 3.21 All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. He's speaking here about intimacy. He's speaking about relationship. And he's saying that because you belong to God, because you belong to Christ, everything now is your servant. Everything is working for your good. Paul plants, Apollos waters, other people come in. All of these circumstances happen. It doesn't matter. God is working it all together for your good. So there's a kind of comfort that comes only from knowing that. 
only from knowing that there is no circumstance that exists or happens apart from the sovereign will of God. That God is able to ensure that everything works in that way. Nothing excluded. Everything working together for good. Or as Paul says down in Romans 8.32, if God didn't spare His own Son, how will He not also sovereignly guarantee all things? All things that work in favor for us. He's not saying, by the way, that all things will be good. He's not saying that you will never experience bad things. That's not the message of Romans 8.28. It's not the message of Scripture. It's not the pattern of Christ nor His apostles. I know there are a lot of people who like to peddle that message. I know it sells very well on the street, if you will. I know it gathers a crowd and I know it generates excitement, but it's not the message of a sovereign God over the real realities of life. The real realities is that you will experience many bad things. You will experience a lot of pain. Because you're in a fallen world, because you're in a fallen body, and because you still are struggling with the flesh and sin, you will experience painful things. But the blessing to us is to know that God is at work in all of them, bringing them together for your good. Even things, by the way, which in themselves are evil. As we said, God is not the first cause Theologically speaking of those things, he's not capable of evil. He's not culpable so that so much sin and evil in, that fills this creation is not uh, something that we can blame God for, but he is still sovereign over it. He's still ultimately controlling it in his marvelous wisdom, working even all of those evil things so that they bring about his good purposes. In a level of wisdom that you and I cannot comprehend. God is able to bridle evil and direct it toward his purposes. He is able to at times temper it. And he's able at times to unleash it. So that his good purposes are never thwarted. But are always accomplished. Just as he sovereignly superintends the purpose of religious leaders so that they carry out an evil plan to murder his son. Peter could say that God predetermined all that to take place. So there is now no circumstance that you experience that you should ever imagine is happening apart from the plan of God's goodness in your life. No difficult circumstance, no painful circumstance, no disappointing circumstance. By the way, not even any mundane circumstance. Not even all the things that you just sort of, just sort of endure each day. Those situations where you find yourself and you, uh, you are bored or you are uh, fatigued or whatever it might be. Just the mundane things of life that you might feel like are purposeless, the scripture tells us God is working all things. He is, has you where you are for a specific purpose to teach you specific lessons and to form certain things in you to bring out purposes, to bring about character, 
That job that you once hated, you now are to understand God is sovereignly using in your life. That co-worker that you once resented, you now look at as God's instrument in your life. The conflict that you have at work, at home, at the church, whatever it might be, that conflict that is going on is no longer a sign that God has abandoned you, that God is not working in your midst, or that God is somehow absent from your situation. In fact, it might be that you are right in the middle. It is that you are right in the middle of where God is working the most, the most mightily. To do something unexpected, to do something absolutely necessary in you, and to do something ultimately for your good and the good of all His children. God's working in everything. You might say, yes, but what about my sin? I mean, you can't say God's really working in my sin, could you? I mean, well, it wouldn't be everything if it excluded your sin, would it? God is capable in His wisdom to use even your sin to bring about good purposes. Not that your sin is good. Not that God is ever responsible for your sin. The Scripture is clear on that. He doesn't tempt you to sin. He doesn't lead you to sin. He's not to blame. James tells us that when we sin, it's not God who tempts us. But we are each tempted when we're drawn away by our own lust and desires. And when desires conceive, they give birth to sin. It comes from within us. But even when that happens, God is able to sovereignly work together with those things in, in such a way that you are not utterly lost. God is able to work even through your sinful choices So that He keeps us and causes us to stand on the day of redemption. He's able to seal us to Himself. And even those things which we do which are against His explicit will. We can say that He has ordained that good purposes might come out of them. Not the sin in itself, but he demonstrates his wisdom and his power by turning all of it to our good. You remember when Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat, Jesus prayed for him. Not only that his faith would not fail, but that through that temptation and failure, that he would be strengthened and he would turn around and strengthen his brothers. God ordained even that. The work of Satan so that Peter would be prepared for the work that he has ahead of him. So God does all kinds of things, even through awful things like your own sin. If nothing else, he's teaching you to hate and despise it. As you see sin destroying the life of loved ones all around you, you learn to hate and despise sin more and more. And then as you see it coming into your own life and destroying relationships and destroying your emotional state, destroying your spiritual life, whatever it might be, as you see it coming in and having all of its ill effects and bringing all of its pain and all of its suffering, God is using even that to teach you the sinfulness of sin, to hate and despise sin more and more. 
He's using it to teach us the weakness of our own flesh, not to put confidence in ourselves, not to trust in ourselves. He's teaching us the depths of His grace in ways that we haven't known before. And the pain that's always the result of sin causes us to hate it and hate it so that it, so I should say we drive it out of our life. It causes us to strengthen our desire for heaven, to groan as we've already seen under the burdens of this flesh and this life, to long for the day of redemption. And so we end up with the Apostle Paul saying for us to live as Christ and to die as gain. That happens through our failures. All that, all that sort of qualifies what Paul means when he says good. God is bringing about good, but good by his definition. A good that is defined, if you will, by his character and by his eternity. Which brings really a third challenge that Paul has for us in giving us this change of perspective on our problems. And it's in this verse when it tells us really the condition we must meet for God's good purpose in our suffering. Paul is describing here a a purpose that he says is for those who love God. So all of this, this, this work that he says God is doing is limited to a select group of people. In other words, this isn't just sort of the superficial optimism that you sometimes hear in the culture. You know, everything's going to work out fine. It'll all be okay. Everything will happen for the best. That's not what Paul is saying. And we shouldn't understand him to in any way represent that kind of superficial attitude. His promise is only for those who love God. In other words, it is only applicable to Christians because this is the most basic definition of a Christian. Someone who loves God. As Jesus says, the greatest commandment, the one that summarizes all of the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, everything in Scripture really, is that we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So a Christian, someone who claims to be, if you will, a believer, someone who claims to be saved, is someone who loves God. Now, of course, everyone claims, it seems these days, to love God. Everyone takes His name on their lips. A lot of people boast about how they love God. But just as, like Jesus taught us so many times, saving faith is so much more than just that superficial claim. It has concrete evidences of love in your life. Loving God involves, first of all, a loyalty to Him above everything and everyone else. Jesus says, if you do not love your father, I mean, excuse me, if you love your father or mother, son or daughter, husband or wife more than Him, then you're not worthy of being called His disciple. So to say you love God means that you love Him above every other relationship, every other uh, avenue of affection in your life. And secondly, loving God means loving His children. As the Apostle John says, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Or in another place, 
we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So one of the distinguishing markers of who Paul's talking about, one of the distinguishing markers of a Christian is, will, is that they will love other Christians. Or another way to say this is one of, the, one of the distinguishing markers of someone who claims that they love God is that they will love the church. They will love, in other words, God's children, God's people. I always wonder about this when I meet someone who says that they love God, they believe God, but they don't like going to church. I mean, I'd be like someone coming to me and say, hey, I like you a lot, but I hate your wife. Because the scripture tells us, right? The church is the bride of Christ. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to say that you love God and yet hate his children. That you love God and don't love his church. Don't have an affection. Don't have a draw. Don't have a desire to be in corporate fellowship. To be in corporate worship together with the saints of God. So a believer is one who loves believers. Who loves the church. Who participates in the church and gathers with the church. Not only that, we could say thirdly, that a love for God excludes a love for the world. As John tells us in another place, John 2.15, excuse me, John 2.17, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So a love for God excludes, or we might say expels, the love for the world. The more and more we love God, the less and less we love this world and the things of this world, which John describes as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The way of the world, the desires of the world, the systems of the world, its values, its treasures, that is no longer what drives us and dictates and controls us. As Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You can't love two masters. You'll end up neglecting your rightful responsibilities to one or the other. You can't love the world, you can't love mammon, and love God. Fourthly, those that Paul is talking about, those who love God, are those who keep His commandments. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will desire to obey Christ. You'll desire to honor Him in all things. You'll cling to His truth. You'll cling to His wisdom. This is a biblical description of a person who truly loves God. I love the way Robert Haldane describes this. He writes in his commentary, he says, In loving God, the affections of the believer terminate in God as their last and highest end. And this they can do in God only. In everything else... There being only a finite goodness, we cannot absolutely rest in it. In other words, if you are a believer, if you really understand who God is, you understand that there's nothing else that is worthy of your affections and of your pursuits the way that God is. And so everything you do now, everything you put your hand to, has as its ultimate purpose, as its termination point. God in His glory. You no longer have pursuits. You no longer have hobbies. You no longer have leisure or whatever it might be, which doesn't ultimately aim to glorify God in the lives of other people. All of that selfish pursuit and all of that worldly thinking goes by the wayside. 
because you love God. As the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That was the psalmist's conclusion, by the way, after his own suffering, after he languished under the injustices of the world, how he saw other people prospering and himself falling behind. And he came to the conclusion that at the end of the day, ultimately, it is God that satisfies his heart anyway. In need, in poverty, in every situation in which he was placed, it sufficed him that God was his portion. God was his inheritance. So you see, when Paul's saying that God is working everything together for good, he has a specific kind of person in mind because he has a specific good in mind. The kind of things that God is doing, the world doesn't want. The world that stands by and says, oh, it's all going to work out for good, What they mean by good is not what Paul means by good. It's not what God means by good. Someone who loves God is someone who embraces, who welcomes the work that God is doing. Good in an eternal sense. Not the superficial happiness that the world's always seeking, but the good defined by God's eternal purposes. In many ways, all this suffering really is working to bring about a brand new value system in you. In as much as those who love God, God is teaching them what this love is all about. He's creating that in you the way He did in Joseph. Joseph wouldn't have chosen the pathway of suffering he had gone down, but but then he didn't realize, he didn't know the things he didn't know. He didn't realize the things that needed to be worked in his character, in his life, to do the things that God wanted him to do. He didn't even desire them before he suffered. The psalmist says, as we already saw, look, before I went astray, before I suffered, I should say, I went astray. I didn't keep your, your law, but now I understand. It's good. It's faithful that you did this. And so it's through all this suffering that God is teaching us the things we would have never learned otherwise. The value system that we wouldn't have had otherwise where things like humility and sympathy and gentleness and patience and compassion are really hammered out in our heart and life like they never would have been before. You see, hardships have a way of bringing out, unfortunately, the worst part of us. And it's not until that's brought to the surface sometimes that we even know to deal with it. This was Job's conclusion. After all of his suffering... He says, once I have been tried, then I will come through like gold. So he looked at his difficulties as sort of a refining process where all of the dross, all the impurities of his life could only be separated from who he is. They could only be separated and skimmed, if you will, off the top through the fires of his trial. And this is what happens. This is what God does. Peter calls it the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold. You value it. 
You value what God brings now through your trial more than you valued the trinkets and the allurements and all of the treasures that you were holding to so tightly that have now been ripped from your hand because of your suffering. You value it more than the gold, more than the health, more than the peace, more than the comfort, the proof of your faith. That God is bringing about through all these purposes. So this is far from the superficial optimism of the world. Because God's purposes bring about His good for His eternal will. So we can say all things work for good for those who love God and for those who love what He loves. For those who define good the way he defines good. And we can say, unfortunately for unbelievers, all things are working, but not for their good, for their ruin. All things are bringing them into further guilt, further alienation, further condemnation, ultimately further punishment. In many cases, just exposing their selfishness more, exposing their foolishness more, exposing so much of their rebellion. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God is at work destroying the wisdom of the wise, thwarting their so-called insight, shaming the strong, bringing to nothing those things which claim to be apart from Him. God is actively at work in all things But even for the unbeliever, bringing those things to his ruin. For those who who love God, God is bringing about his purposes. And we can bring with that a fourth challenge that Paul gives us to change our perspective on our problems, which is this, the coordination you may not realize. The coordination you may not realize in God's good purposes. And by that, I simply mean that God is working all things together. Several things, sometimes so many levels you could never begin to comprehend it. In other words, God's work, or we might say our view of God's sovereignty over all of this is not some sort of fatalistic puppet show where God is just gently pulling a few strings and creating a few robotic responses of things around us. Instead, we have this understanding That God is putting on display His magnificent wisdom so that perhaps tens of thousands, if not tens of millions and billions of factors are being all directed simultaneously to His specific purposes to work together. The word is sooner gay, which we get synergism from, the working together of multiple things for a united purpose. And it's not as if these things are working on their own, but God is at work sovereignly in each one of them. The end result, then, is that you and I cannot simply or easily calculate how God is going to work. We don't know. We might experience cancer and decide that God is going to work through some process of treatment and radiation and bring us about and we're going to end the day standing with the family of God and praising Him in church. And we have tried to, to 
calculate exactly how all this is going to work out. And we have no idea the way that God is going to use that cancer or that situation in our life to accomplish all kinds of things, not only in us, but through us to other people. But He's working. He's working all of them. And there are so many factors, so many ways we cannot sit back and say, well, if it fails to happen just this way, God didn't work. If it fails to happen just like it did with someone else, God didn't work. We can trust that as all of it comes to pass, all of it is happening in ways seen and in ways unseen, just exactly as He ordained it. Fifthly, Paul challenges us to the calling we must remember in God's good purposes, the calling we must remember. Those who love God, he says, and at the end of the verse, those who are called according to his purpose. They're the ones that God's working in. Not everyone, that is, is called. Not everyone loves God. Not everyone has this kind of working from God because not everyone is called in this way. That is to say, Paul's not talking about the general call. Scripture scripture talks about a general call. Jesus says many are called, but few are chosen. There's a general call in which people hear the gospel, the gospel clearly proclaimed to them, and God is always glorified in that. But we're told very few respond to that general call. But what Paul has in mind here is the eternal call, the call that God always brings to pass. And he's speaking of a call that brings about a definitive purpose. We're called according to His purpose. He's determined a purpose for each one of us who are His own, who have been caused to love Him because of Him. As Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, this working that God is doing in us and because of this great work of salvation... He says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We've been purposed to accomplish exactly what God wants to accomplish. By the way, Romans 8, 29 and 30 really expand on that thought and expand on exactly how that purpose is working out. God predestined us, but He predestined us to a purpose. What is it? To be conformed to the image of His Son. So we're all the way back where we started in verse 17. We're glorified together with Him, provided we suffer with Him. We're glorified in God's purpose, provided we suffer in God's purpose. God is working it all out and by His irrevocable purpose we have confidence that our suffering is not aimless. That our days are not just passing in uselessness. That the injustices that we are enduring, the prayers that we're lifting up in the midst of them, the cries and the groanings for God to rescue us in our situation, they're not unheard. They're 
bolstered by the prayers of the Spirit. They're undergirded by the purposes of God. So that you can rejoice. So that you can count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Beloved, He's working. And He's working for good. He hasn't forgotten you. You're right where He wants you. You're struggling with exactly the things He wants you to struggle with for the purposes that He wants to accomplish. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we are grateful for these reminders. Nothing that we endure, nothing that we suffer, all the discomfort that brings that comes into our life, we can give you thanks. We can know that the challenges that come are challenges to our faith, are calls to our heart to let you do the work that you're doing in us. So Lord, we embrace it. We thank you for the suffering. To the extent that our Savior suffered, Lord, appointed by your hand, we will gladly walk the same pathway so that we can experience the purpose, the ultimate purpose of being conformed to His image. And may you do so, Lord, as we add our prayers and our hearty amen to that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.